Hi everybody and welcome to Murder at Bedtime. 15 to 20 minute true crime bedtime story with me, your host, Lyndon. No frills, no waffle, no adverts. I hope I can persuade you to listen for a bit to investigate unfaithfulness, poisoning, masochists, British executions. I've got a doozy of an episode for you. So check that out if you fancy it. Please feel free to drop me a line on Instagram. Hope to see you again soon for Murder at Bedtime with Lyndon. And with that, let's crack on. And thank you for listening. everyone welcome back to episode 85 at the true crime bnb today i have a returning favorite guest and when you were here the first time a couple of months ago people gave me great feedback on your storytelling and your sweet personality and you know that i am already a fan so everybody out there in the listening world welcome back Lyndon from murder at bedtime with Lyndon and the exiled yellow belly hello Lyndon. Good afternoon, Beth, from a very, very cold UK. It's been a very <laughs> cold weekend, as you can see with my rainbow hat on. I'm trying to keep warm. But anyway, I'm absolutely thrilled to be invited back for a second time. As you know, we've got this mutual loving for each other's channels, which is great. <laughs> and I am really pleased to be invited back into your palatial home. Well, I am so grateful that you're back again, because I didn't even give you very much notice. You were like, okay, I think I can make that work. You were so accommodating, and I really appreciate that. What would you like for people to know about your podcast and YouTube channels? Well, my podcast, Murder at Bedtime with Lyndon, was something that uh, I conceived during the pandemic, just really for my own mental health, because I live on my own. So it was sort of like to get something out there that kept me occupied. It was basically at first just a Facebook thing that I did for a few friends who said said to me, have you heard of podcasting? And I really, I hadn't. I'm taking no notice. (laughs) I just thought, well, go on, let's give this a go then. I looked into how to do it very, very cheaply. And I started off very, very cheaply. And I think I've now done in three years, 46 or 47 episodes of work. So they're not done religiously on time. I'm a bit sometimes out of my comfort zone when I'm doing up-to-date murders. I do go for Victorian, Edwardian sort of murders. But, you know, when I come as a guest on True Crime B&B, I do my best to bring it a little bit up-to-date. So that's Murder at Bedtime. Exiled Yellow Belly is a YouTube channel where basically I just go round telling local stories of folklore, ghosts, witches and things in my local area. So if anybody fancies seeing the face behind the voice, I mean, I don't recommend it, but you might like it. (laughs) He's very handsome, everybody. You don't listen to him. (laughs) If you could see me at the moment in these glasses and this hat, you wouldn't really say that, would they? But anyway, never mind. That is the Exiled Yellow Belly on YouTube. Everybody who goes on there is welcome. Please come see me and Lynn just tottering around at old age, around decrepit old buildings (laughs) with a decrepit couple of people trying to make life interesting. You know. I love to travel. I have not been to the UK yet, but I feel like I've been to small villages in the UK because when you walk through those, it's like I'm walking through it with you. And I really love the Exiled Yellowbelly videos because they're taking me to places off the beaten path that I otherwise 
would have never ever thought to go visit. So I love those videos. That's fantastic then, Beth. Because if you and other people feel that way, it means I'm doing something right. I mean, the Exiled Yellow Valley is just a total hobby of mine. I'm actually going out to look at these things and I'm interested in them. And I just think to myself, oh, I'll take my camera with me and film it. And that's basically what it is. What's the farthest that you've gone from home uh, to do one of your exiled yellow belly things? And not the ones that you did at your parents' house. That doesn't count because you already had an end destination there. That's right. The furthest one I've done so far is when I did a, a series of videos on holiday in North Yorkshire. I did about, I think, three or four up in North Yorkshire when I went for a few days up there, found a few places all quite near to each other. And how far is Yorkshire from you? From my house, it's a, probably about 250, 300 miles. I'm hoping at some time to go up into Scotland. Lots of hauntings. Well, Scotland's an absolutely beautiful country. Yeah. I've been there many times and it's absolutely beautiful. I love Scotland. So I could probably spend a fortnight up there going around doing stuff. It's pure enjoyment doing the Exiled Yellowbelly. If anybody wants to watch, they can see me scaring myself out of my wits. Going round haunted places where I am a wuss, let's be honest. So anyway, as you would say, we're doing a lot of waffle here. You know, this is the only time I ever waffled, isn't it? Because I <laughs> pride myself on the murder at bedtime that it's a no waffle channel time. But I don't mind. I make an exception in your case. Well, you know that the masochists like to hang around at the end and listen. <laughs> they do. They do, yeah. So why don't you go ahead and you can be our bad guy today? Okay, you know what? I will be your bad guy. And I'm going to tell you this. This is out of my comfort zone. Because the last one I did for you as well was another one out of my comfort zone. Because I don't normally do up-to-date murders. Right. Now, this one is quite up-to-date, 2012. And I had to sort of search around to try and find something that encapsulated what we were going to do today. And the fact it's coming out near to Christmas. I didn't realise that this was going to be quite so harrowing. I found it very hard to actually do this. I thought it was hard to do the research. And I'll probably find it hard to do the narration. There's not going to be many laughs. Let's put it that way. All right. There's not going to be any laughs. Well, you know, I don't approve of laughing all the way through a murder tale no. anyway. Because that's just not respectful in my opinion. I think you know that when I do murder at bedtime... All the people and mostly the relatives and everything are already dead. Right. And I might insert a bit of sarcastic humour or something into it at points. I don't feel in a case like this, which is so up to date, that I can do anything like that. And I wouldn't want to. So, Well, when you say something that's organically just funny, I'm okay with that. As long as it's not something that's ridiculing the crime or ridiculing the victim. Oh, yeah. I'd never do that anyway. You know, ridiculing the perpetrator, that's perfectly fine as far as I'm concerned. But I'm on the same page as you. So, you know, I want to be respectful in this story. So I will read it to you. And as you know, I am a pen and paper person. I'm not a teleprompter person. So <laughs> you might even hear the pages turning. And who knows? Well, all right. Yeah, you can edit them out later. Adds to the charm. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, the oldie worldie charm of murder at bedtime. <laughs> Oldie worldy. <laughs> <laughs> I am going to try and tell you the story of the murder of Alan Greaves. So I'll begin. Maureen and Alan Greaves loved their life. They loved each other, their children and grandchildren, and they loved their faith. They had met in 1971 when they were both trainee social workers 
68-year-old Alan had taken early retirement to help his wife with her work in the church army, which was an outreach arm of the Church of England. He also served as a school governor, played the piano for a primary school and helped with local choirs in the area. Alan was also the organist at their local church, St Saviour's, which was only several hundred yards from their home in High Green, Sheffield. Now, Sheffield is called the Steel Town. It's a very big steel town in the north of England, in Yorkshire. Okay. Alan had played the organ at the church at midnight mass for the past nine years. In April 2012, the pair had celebrated their 40th wedding anniversary and by Christmas Eve of that year was also a major celebration as their daughter Alison, a missionary in Mozambique, was coming home with their two grandchildren for the first time in two years. Oh, wow. Okay. I bet they were looking forward to that. They were really looking forward to it. The whole family, the four children and the two grandchildren were all going to be staying at Alan and Maureen's house for that Christmas. And on Christmas Eve, they were there. So at 11pm on that Christmas Eve, Alan kissed his wife and family and said goodbye to them all because they were all going to be in bed, be asleep before he arrived home from Midnight Mass in the early hours of Christmas morning. Mm -hmm. And he set off on the short walk to St Saviour's. Now, sadly, Alan would not return on Christmas morning for his family Christmas. And in fact, he would never even make it to the church to play the organ that night. Oh, wow. Just 15 minutes after he left home, he was found collapsed by the side of the road by a pizza delivery driver just 250 yards from the church. Now, you said that, excuse me, you said that he only lived a couple of hundred yards from the church, right? Several hundred yards. Okay, so he was maybe halfway to the church when he was found? He was about halfway, yeah. Okay. He was actually, he was walking, it was a particularly cold night, and he just got about 250 yards from the church. Okay. Well, the driver, the pizza delivery driver, he dialed 999, as you know, that's our emergency service number, Mm -hmm. and the police arrived before the ambulance. At first it was thought that Alan had been hit by a car, but as the policeman checked him for injuries, he found he had terrible injuries to his head that looked and felt like they had not been caused by an automobile accident. Oh no. It was definitely not a robbery as his briefcase lay by his side, which inside gave Alan's identity and address. So it was that when Maureen answered the door just 30 minutes after her husband had left home, she headed straight to the hospital after being told that Alan had suffered injuries in an incident. Arriving at hospital thinking her husband had probably had a fall and she would probably be taking him home later, she saw him lying in a hospital bed. His head was so swollen that he was unrecognisable. Unable to speak due to massive brain injuries. Oh my goodness. The consultant then told her the devastating news that Alan had sustained unsurvivable brain trauma. Was he unconscious at this point? He was conscious 
when the delivery driver came up to him because he was waving his arms around and everything, but he lapsed into unconsciousness in the ambulance. Okay. He never he never regained consciousness. Okay. Because his brain just kept swelling, and the more it swells, the worse the damage becomes. Yeah. When they checked his injuries, they found out they were just they were unsurvivable. Poor guy. The police forensic team quickly ascertained that Alan had been struck while standing, while kneeling, and while on the ground <sighs> by the positioning of the blood spatter on the park railings that he was lent against. Also, the hat that he had been wearing had been badly damaged by the blows and his glasses had been knocked over the top of the railings into the park. Oh, it's just vicious. Nothing had been taken from him. Viciousness, just to be vicious. Leaving the police to believe that this was a random violent attack by a very dangerous person or persons. Sadly, on the 27th of December, without ever regaining consciousness, Maureen gave permission for them to turn off Alan's machine. He passed away with his whole family around him. Maureen said later not being able to say goodbye to the love of her life was the hardest thing ever in her life. This was now a murder investigation. The police decided to do a massive sweep of all CCTV cameras in the area, their own, local businesses and private homes. Eventually, they found Alan on a very grainy recording and seconds behind him, two men following. Oh, man. They found the two men on more footage, but still, the quality was very poor. So they couldn't be identified? It was very hard to identify anybody. But as the chief detective said, if he knew them people was either a friend of his or people that were his family, he would have been able to recognise by their clothes or their way they walked, their gait or what something. He said for a lot of people it was just grainy footage, but he would have known if it was somebody he knew yeah. by that footage. So on January the 6th, they decided to release the best of the footage to the media. Oh, good. It worked. That's fantastic. It worked straight away. Next day, 21-year-old Ashley Foster walked into a police station with his mother and told detectives he was one of the men on the CCTV footage. He said he had witnessed the attack but he had nothing to do with it. That had been carried out by his friend, 22-year-old wow. Jonathan Bowling, who was already known to police for violent crime. Bowling and Foster were arrested, and when questioned, they both tried to blame the other. But the police, believing that two weapons had been used, had them both charged with murder. On the 6th of February 2013, Alan's funeral was held at his local church. Over 600 people attended the funeral and hundreds lined the streets. The police investigation continued and a splinter of wood taken from Alan's head was analysed and thought to come from something like a pickaxe handle. Oh my, wow. 
Now, information reached them anonymously that there was a pickaxe handle hidden in the communal area of a block of flats where Bowling's sister lived. It was retrieved and found to have the blood of Alan Greaves on it and the DNA of Jonathan Bowling. But then at a hearing to set the trial date on the 7th of June 2013, Jonathan Bowling, out of the blue, surprised everybody and pled guilty to Alan's murder. Now, this significantly weakened the murder case against Ashley Foster, as Bowling had now admitted to the murder. At his trial, Foster said he lived in fear of Jonathan Bowling, but had refused to join in the attack on Alan. The jury found him not guilty of murder, but found him guilty of manslaughter. Only, I'm sorry, only Ashley was found guilty of manslaughter. So Bowling, but he's taken full responsibility for the murder. Okay. They've tried Foster for the murder. Yeah. The jury has decided that they cannot convict him of murder, but still think that he had something to do with it. So we've given him the lesser charge of manslaughter. Well, you know what? If you were there and you watched this happen and you didn't do anything to try to stop it, you don't get a pass yeah. for not helping that poor man who just wanted to go play the organ. This is the thing. And this is where we will always have a problem with the murder and the manslaughter charges. Right. You know, the police thought, the police went through, even though they knew that Bowling had admitted to it, the reason why they still went through with the murder case was because they believed that by the injuries that Alan had on his head, two weapons had been used. They believed that one was the baseball bat and the other was a claw hammer. So also there were witnesses that heard the pair of them running down the road laughing after the attack. That's disgusting. That's absolutely disgusting. But as I say, apparently in the court case for Foster, when the verdict was given of not guilty, the whole of Foster's family were up in the court cheering and and clapping and everything because I think they thought that was it. He was going to be set free. But then the jury said, no, we find him guilty of manslaughter. And I must say that was a relief to Maureen because Maureen thought he was going to walk free. Right. So anyway, at the sentence hearing, Jonathan Bowling's previous convictions were read out. He threatened a policeman and a woman on separate occasions with a hammer. And he headbutted a woman who complained about him throwing snowballs at her windows. Oh, wow. So he had previous. So then the judge sentenced him to life imprisonment. Now, as we know, in this country, life doesn't actually mean life. So he was sentenced to life imprisonment with a minimum sentence of 25 years. So that's 25 years before he can, an application for parole. So so where does the good behavior clause kick in? Does that apply to the minimum sentence? No. If a minimum sentence has been given of 25 years of a murder case, he has to serve 25 years. Okay. Good. Then it will go to the fact of whether he actually has been good behaviour, whether he's changed, whether he's got over it and he can go out into society. 
and he'll face a parole hearing. And then he still might not be released. In fact, there's a lot of people who think that he'll never come out. Wow. So he's there for the next 25 years. He sounds like a monster. Stay put. Yeah. And that's exactly what we want. We want our killers, especially random killers who just kill people for kicks. We want them to stay in prison. Yeah. Because it's probably, they're not going to be made better, are they? Nope. So then it was down to Foster. Foster was sentenced to nine years. So he's probably out now. Maureen Greaves, this is Alan's wife, is a truly remarkable woman. Her faith to her is almost everything. She stated that she had forgiven the two killers and had left them in God's hands. In that way, she doesn't go to bed with hate in her heart every night or think of them endlessly. She's a truly remarkable woman whose faith is unbelievably strong. I don't think I could act that way in any way, shape or form, but I think that she's amazing. Now, that was a very hard story to research and write. If you'd heard about the way that Alan was held in that community, he was a smashing bloke. He just spent his whole life doing good by being a social worker. He did so much for the community. He opened a food bank and furniture bank for people who didn't have much. Wow. He'd taken years collecting the stuff in his garage to get this food bank and furniture bank open to the public. He was just an amazing guy, if you read about him. Fantastic man. And he would never have got into a fight with anybody. No. He was a very tall man. But he hated confrontation. He would never have, have got into a fight. He was described as a gentle gentleman. He was missed terribly by his parishioners and his, his kids absolutely adored him. You know, I just, I don't think that people like you and I will ever understand what possesses a person just walking down the street to say, oh, let's go just kill that guy. Yeah. I will never in my life be able to comprehend why that is something that somebody wants to do. And secondly, it always happens to people like this. It always happens to the person who just got their life together or the person who has always spent their life trying to take care of other people and do good things for the people around them. It's always the good people who get decimated by these monsters who just are walking down the street. I don't understand, and it makes me so mad. I could understand it because I felt emotionally drained when I was reading all the stuff. I mean, you know, I've had to leave a lot out, or we would have been here all night with all the nice yeah. things that were said about him, all the good things he did. And Maureen. Maureen's a remarkable woman as well. And, you know, I had to leave a lot out, but I actually felt very emotional reading up on this case, which is very strange because I heard about this case in 2012, but I never really went into it. Yeah. And, you know, of course, I saw it on the news every night and that, but never really went into it like I have on this. Just an unbelievable pair, an unbelievable couple. You know, really fantastic. And, and also, I'd like to say that even harder in when I was reading this was the realisation later I found out that when Alan left the house that night, he walked a while, then decided it was too cold and went home for his hat. Oh, no. If he hadn't gone home for his hat, he'd have missed them. He would have missed them entirely. And I mean, 
that just blew me away. That really That's... was the thing for me. I, I was pretty upset then when I found that out. Yeah, he went home. Yeah. He got his hat. And if he'd carried on walking, he would have been at the church before they got to him. That's just heartbreaking. No, uh, but yeah. That's heartbreaking. The only positive that I can think about this entire story is that at least his kids from out of the country were able to see him before yeah. he died. Yeah. That's the only positive in this entire story. So his daughter and her grandkids got to see him just fleetingly before he went on that journey. Now, it looks to me, I mean, I don't know what you think, but there was definitely some intent by both of them blokes, I believe. They had gone down Allen Street that evening earlier, broke into a shed, and they had taken two pickaxes where they had kicked the pickaxe head off and then marched off down the street with the pickaxe handles. That guy who got the manslaughter conviction. Yeah. It's really hard for me to believe he didn't think something was about to happen. Yeah. It's really hard for me to believe that he just was walking along. Oh, it's a lovely Christmas Eve. I'm just going to go for a walk with my friend and we're going to enjoy the fresh air. Yeah. I mean... I don't believe for a second that's what that guy was thinking. He knew something was going to happen. On some of the reports I read, I do actually believe that he was terrified of bowling. I don't think he was what you would call a proper friend. He was just a man he knew who came to his house. And from some of the reports I heard, on the evening of the murder, Bowling arrived round at Foster's house. Foster was a married man with children. And Bowling made a sexual pass at Foster's wife. Oh, brother to which Foster took him outside and took him for a walk to calm the situation down. Now, in my mind, I still believe that maybe Foster didn't have something to do with the actual attack. It points a bit from what I've been watching that he refused and Bowling ran ahead and attacked Alan. Oh. Now, I can't be sure, and I think that is what probably swayed the jury in the manslaughter case, and he got the nine nine years for it. I think it was out of character for Foster to hurt somebody, but definitely not for bowling. It also brings up another thing, then. Why, when someone that you know is bad news comes into your life, why would you let them into your home with your family? Why would you continue to associate with them? Why would you open the door when this guy comes knocking in the middle of the night? Why do people give people a pass when they're awful people? Why yeah. Why do we just let it slide? We just say, oh, well, he didn't hurt me, so I'll just let it go. I agree. He's, you know, he, he's not going to hurt my family. Yeah. Well, he stole a patriarch from his family on Christmas Eve. I, I don't know. I, I'm probably not making any sense in my argument here. But I... No, I, I, can, I can see exactly where you're coming from. But sometimes I think people make these decisions out of fear. He knew bowling through marriage. I don't know what it was. It was some sort of marriage that made them family. Oh, I didn't realise they were related to each other. I thought they were just... They weren't related by blood. Right. But they, they had become... They were extended family. Sort of stepbrothers by one's mother getting together with one's father or something like that. And so they were bonded by a certain thing. 
But he was definitely, I believe, scared of him. Bowling was trouble. Wow. But I don't think we'll ever know, unless Foster says something in the future, which I doubt, I don't think we'll ever know for sure whether he was involved in the actual attack. But I'm leaning towards not. Well, I think you make a good set of points that makes it sound like he was probably a terrified bystander. But I don't know if you can... I don't know. I'm, I have mixed feelings about it. Yeah. You don't know whether you can excuse that. Right. Being somebody who stands by and just lets it happen. I agree with you totally. Yeah. I would like to think that most people, if they see the, their acquaintance starting to clobber someone with a baseball bat or a pickaxe. Yeah. Most people are going to say, what in the hell are you doing? Stop it. Or call police or do something, but don't stand there and let them kill somebody. Do something, yeah. So I'm sorry. I'm I'm on a rant now. I'm ranting. No, I can understand totally where you're coming from, but I can also understand why the jury came to the decision they did. They couldn't be sure that he had been in part of the attack. And Maureen was terrified that he was going to get away with nothing. Yeah. So she was actually quite happy that he got nine years. Well, I think that that was the fairest thing because he was definitely there and he definitely didn't help the situation by oh, yeah. trying to prevent it or trying to get his quote unquote friend no. off of our hero. But wow, that was a terrible story. That's really, yeah, that really is heartbreaking. No wonder you had a hard time with that one. Gotta be honest, I think it's everything plus the fact, the timing. Christmas Eve and this guy's just going to play the organ at the Midnight Mass. Come on. Yeah. You know. I think you're going to see that there are some similarities in our stories, though. Oh, good. Well, I mean, my guy survived, but... I like, you know I like the survival stories. Well, I do too, because I need them after what you just did to me. Sorry. I need something positive after what you just did. But there's a lot of maddening situations in my story, too. Yeah. And so... Since we decided ahead of time, because this episode will come out several days before Christmas, it comes out on the 22nd. So we decided that you were going to be our Christmas bad guy and I will be our Christmas good guy. So I have a survivor story that is also Christmas related. Okay. Looking forward to it. All right. So we are going to a little town called Hillsboro, Oregon. And I don't know how familiar you are with the map of the U.S., but Oregon is on the upper left corner of the continental United States. So it's just under Washington State. Okay. So Richard Lee Underwood Jr. was 28 years old in 1997. Richard Jr. had a wife named Bonnie. The two of them were starting out life as first-time parents, and they had a newborn son. Richard Jr. was a reserve sheriff's deputy and he was working towards becoming a full-time deputy sheriff. His father had been a sheriff's sergeant for 26 years in Hillsboro, Oregon, and Richard Jr. wanted to continue that legacy in the department. Richard Jr. also worked seasonally at his family's Christmas tree lot, Underwood Brothers Christmas Trees, which was owned by Richard Sr. and his brother, William Underwood. We have all the big box stores. You'll find Christmas tree lots out front every December. They're usually in a big parking lot someplace. Is that how it's done there too? We seem to have, they're normally on farms or in garden centers. Okay. Yeah. You, you can get them in garden centers too. I've been to garden centers today and there's a huge one. That's absolutely Christmas trees are going, they're going out of there like nobody's business. I've never seen anything like it. 
Well, I think the nurseries are cool because it's nice to get a, a live Christmas tree that you can plant somewhere afterwards rather than yeah. worrying that your house is going to burn down because it dried out so bad. But so anyway, the family had owned this Christmas tree lot for years. They had been operating this for years. And every December, Richard Jr. would go work at the tree lot. Richard Jr. had a calm and gentle demeanor about him. He was known to be a mediator and a peacemaker. So when there were squabbles around him, he just calmed everybody down. He wanted everybody to get along and play fair. On December the 15th, 1997, which was a Monday, the Christmas tree lot was open as usual. Richard Jr., his 27-year-old brother Doug, and their uncle William Underwood, who was one of the owners of the lot, he was 53. They were all working at the lot, assisting people coming out to buy their Christmas tree. What the men would do was lift them up out of the rows so that people could see them. They'd shake them to make the branches spread out, and they'd say, oh, that's the one we want. Then the men would wrap the tree, help them load it into their cars. The customers that were coming here would park in a lot right next to the tree lot, and then they would walk over to buy their Christmas tree. On this Monday night, they had customers on the lot, but a bunch of cars carrying a bunch of teenagers drove through the parking lot and threw glass wine cooler or beer bottles out of their cars, and some of them were breaking in the parking lot. The teenagers naturally thought this was hilarious behavior, but broken glass in a parking lot turns into a huge hassle for a lot of people. So Uncle William Underwood, long since done with putting up with teenager douchebaggery, had shouted at the kids about throwing bottles in the parking lot. At this point, one of the boys actually got out of the car carrying a baseball bat and started swinging the bat over his head, ramping up the confrontation to a dangerous level. I mean, all they had to do was drive away. But this kid decides to get out and start swinging his baseball bat around. Richard Jr., as I said, was ever the peacemaker. He went over and he spoke calmly. He spoke rationally to the boys. He de-escalated the confrontation and the teenagers ended up getting back in their cars and driving away. They had taken off as if the situation had blown over, but their entitled attitudes were still intact. The boys went to school the next day, bragging about how they were going to go get revenge on the Underwood family for reprimanding them. They were going to teach the Underwoods a lesson. And then they went around recruiting their friends to return with them that Tuesday night to the Christmas tree lot, either to help them rough up the older men or just to show up for extra intimidation. That night, Tuesday, December 16, 1998, the Underwoods were back at the lot selling their Christmas trees when again, carloads of teenagers started pouring in, many more than the night before. When they began flooding out of their cars, it was clear that something bad was about to go down. Estimates were as high as a dozen teenagers who had shown up to attack the family for scolding the teens the night before, five or eight other boys that didn't participate, but just came to watch and support their buddies. So around 20 high school boys had driven up and started getting out of their cars. They blocked the driveway so that no one could get in or out. Then they swarmed the tree lot, attacking William, Doug, Richard Jr., and their family friend, Brad Nicholson. Someone passing by the lot just happened to see the altercation and called 911, which is our 999. After just a couple of minutes, police sirens began to get closer to the tree lot, and when the boys heard the sirens, they hurriedly jumped into their cars and took off, fleeing the scene. But when the dust settled, two of the boys had gotten left behind. Jeremiah Jenkins, who was the one who had swung the bat over his head the night before, 
and his cousin Michael Bryant were the only two left, and they began panicking at being stranded there with these four older men, now that they're outnumbered. Michael Bryant had lost his car keys in the riot. The keys had then been found and picked up by Uncle William Underwood, and they were unable to escape with their friends. The two boys were yelling and rushing at the men, trying to get their car keys back, but William refused to let them have the keys because he wanted to hold them there until the police arrived. So he's got the keys in his pocket and he won't let them leave. Jeremiah Jenkins still had his baseball bat, and he swung the bat menacingly near the head of William Underwood, trying to intimidate him into giving up the keys. But he missed. And meanwhile, Michael Bryant had begun attacking Doug Underwood, who was the 27-year-old. And so Uncle William had turned over to pull Bryant off of his nephew. When William and Doug turned back to look at Richard Jr., he was on the ground. He had crumpled in a heap and was lying in the muddy gravel. Richard was bleeding badly from the left side of his head and he couldn't speak. Jeremiah Jenkins had swung the bat again and smashed Richard in the head with it. I see you shaking your head. Yeah. See where the similarities are here. Yeah. Yeah. As the police arrived, Jeremiah Jenkins was apprehended and cited, not arrested, but cited for suspicion of assault. Michael Bryant was cited for suspicion of disorderly conduct. No formal charges were filed that night because there had been so many people involved. And at that time, it was still unclear as to what had actually happened. Richard Jr. was taken to Legacy Emanuel Hospital, where he underwent emergency surgery to remove part of his cranium where the bat had shattered it. He was in a coma for three days. When he awoke, he had no memory of what had happened, and he didn't understand why he was in the hospital. Richard Jr. was unable to speak for a week, and he began experiencing seizures. After several more days, Richard Jr. started regaining his ability to speak and was even beginning to form basic sentences. He was able to sit up in a chair. He was even able to walk with assistance. He had had to undergo multiple risky surgeries, was left with seizures, and he had memory loss. Doctors told his family he was likely to have lifelong disabilities due to his traumatic brain injury, but he made more short-term progress than anybody at first expected. On January 9, 1998, several weeks now after the attack, Richard Jr. was scheduled to leave the rehabilitation center where he had been since after his surgeries. His family accompanied him to make his first public comment after the assault. He was brought to a table in the public room where the press was waiting for him. Richard was in a wheelchair wearing a bicycle helmet. He needed this to protect his brain where a portion of his skull had been removed during his first surgery. Richard was going to be wearing the helmet all the time until he had another surgery to replace the missing portion of his skull, which was going to be around eight weeks after the initial surgery. Richard braced himself on the table, stood up, and thanked the people who had been so kind and so supportive towards him and his family. He told them he had no memory of the attack or who had committed the crime against him or why. He said, quote, I don't know him. I don't know why he hit me. I wasn't doing anything. Jeremiah Jenkins, who had caused this terrible injury to Richard Jr., had been arrested January 2nd and was at this time still being held without bail. He was charged with first-degree assault, second-degree assault, and unlawful use of a weapon. On January 15, 1998, seven other teenagers were indicted as accessories to the attack, 
Six were picked up by police, and the seventh turned himself in at 6.45 p.m. The charges against each of these other seven boys were first-degree assault, two counts of second-degree assault, two counts of third-degree assault, unlawful use of a weapon, and riot. So you can see there are a lot of charges yeah. against this entire group of total of eight people. Yeah. The seven that had been arrested on this day were Matthew Bryant, who was 18 and who was the one who had lost his car keys, his brother, David Bryant, who was 17, Michael Spacito, Colin Roberts, and Jamal Nagy, who were all 17, Joshua Rose, who was 18, and Samrock Sar, who was 16. Now, just for background information, first-degree assault carried a mandatory 90-month prison sentence with mandatory 70 months for second-degree assault. So all of these boys were facing some real repercussions for what they had done. Yeah, yeah. In February 1998, Richard Jr. had gone to the Legacy Emanuel Hospital for his rehabilitation therapy session, and his dad, Richard Sr., was there with him. As they headed to his appointment, Jeremiah Jenkins walked into the hospital. He was there to accompany his pregnant sister for her doctor appointment. But Jenkins and Richard Jr. crossed paths in that lobby, and Jenkins took this opportunity to spitefully sneer at Richard. Richard Sr. said that his son was visibly shaken because he was so vulnerable. Richard was still wearing the bicycle helmet because the left side of his skull was still missing. He was going in for surgery ironically, to close that missing part of his cranium the very next day. But this day, he was frighteningly vulnerable in this condition. Basically, if he took that helmet off, all that was covering his brain was skin. So, sorry, so now this Jeremiah Johnson is now out on bail? Yeah, I'm about to explain how that happened. Oh, okay, yeah. But part of it was he wasn't supposed to have any contact with Richard Jr. Okay. The menacing... The sneer, the menacing sneer, was reported to security who tracked Jeremiah down in the hospital. Jeremiah Jenkins, who had been released from jail on bond just nine days earlier, had agreed as part of his release agreement not to come into contact with anyone from the Underwood family. Yeah. After this encounter and his intimidation of Richard Jr., his release agreement was rescinded and he was returned to lockup at the Long Juvenile Detention Center. I'm glad to hear it. Me too. Poor Jeremiah cried when he was led back to jail in handcuffs. Terrible. By May, however, Richard Jr., who now has had his skull repaired, probably put a piece of titanium or something in there to close that. Yeah. He had made so much progress in his recovery that he continued towards his goals of becoming a full-time sheriff's deputy. He had studied the manuals. He had practiced filling out the report forms. He had been working on his physical fitness standards. And he had been hired and was set to be sworn in along with three other new deputies on June 1st, 1998. He still wasn't 100% physically or mentally because remember, he still had memory loss and he still had occasional seizures, but he was close and he was working hard. He said he was just a little bit slow, but he was confident he would get there. So although he was sworn in as a deputy in June, by October, he had had some setbacks and he needed to take a leave of absence from the sheriff's department. I was just thinking to myself, that's a hell of a lot of responsibility to take on with the things that he's going through. That's really fast. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think he just came back too fast. On October the 27th, 1998, the courtroom was packed at the end of a two-week trial for Jeremiah Jenkins and Matthew Bryant. 
There was standing room only. The jury had deliberated for six hours over two days at the end of this trial before the verdict was read. Jeremiah Jenkins and his cousin Matthew Bryant were found not guilty of the most serious charges of assault. And those, by the way, were the only charges against Jeremiah Jenkins. So he was just found not guilty. The jury had acquitted them because the defense had argued that the adults, the Underwood men and their friend, were threatening to kill and were punching and choking Matthew Bryant and that the bat was used only in self-defense. I knew that was coming. Yeah. The defense, in what I would have to classify as victim-blaming, called the Underwoods drunken bullies and liars. The defense attorney made the statement, quote, Every one of those Underwoods is older, bigger, and a whole lot tougher than any of those kids, end quote. Which is irrelevant. Because those kids outnumbered the Underwoods five to one. Yeah. Those kids were the ones who came looking for trouble. Plus, the baseball bat had been brought out long before Jeremiah Jenkins had been one of the last two there. Yeah. Long before he had felt fear for his own safety. So I take a lot of issue with those verdicts. I think it's a bunch of crap. I take issue with it, but I actually could see it coming. The fact there was two of them and four of them. somehow I could see it was leading all up to this. Well, I didn't see it coming because in my mind, 20 boys showed up there to hurt four men. Yeah. 18 boys ran away. Two boys are left there. Those two boys could have hopped in a car with somebody else. I agree. They could have walked off the lot and the men would have let them go. But no, they, they stayed there and hit a man in the head with a baseball bat. To me, that's not self-defense. You came here looking for this trouble. I totally agree with you, Beth, but I'm just thinking of it from the defense's clever defense lawyer's point of view. And you could actually see his mind working and knowing he could get these blokes off. Yeah, it's disgusting. It's disgusting. It is. It is. But you know my low opinion of defense (laughs) lawyers anyway. (laughs) know what's frustrating is that people like this get off yeah they get out of their responsibilities but then you have people sitting on death row who didn't actually commit that crime so it's very frustrating absolutely it's really hard to have any faith in injustice at all right now yeah i mean i don't think it doesn't just happen in america does it i mean you know you see things here as well it's just so ridiculous do you have the level of Innocent people convicted in the UK as as we have here. Uh, like we have the Innocence Project who is going through those old cases and trying to prove DNA shows my client did not do this. Yeah, I think DNA is becoming a, a godsend. But for proving people are innocent as well as proving they're guilty. And we do have the same sort of project here. I don't know whether it's called Innocence or not, but we do have the same sort of thing. But it doesn't seem as though we have the same amount. I mean, I know we're a much smaller country, but we don't seem to have the same amount of these things happen. Yeah. They're normally, I think, the judicial system of finding people guilty in this country is pretty good. It's the other way. It's people getting off from highly paid defence lawyers. Yeah. Which I don't really get my head round at all. But they only come further down my hatred chain from parole boards. Oh, yeah. We talked about them. I absolutely dislike parole boards so much. Because you told me the last time we recorded that it may not even be an actual board. It may just be one guy. 
making that decision? It can be one to three people. So a parole board can be an anonymous person of one yeah. that never has to have their name given out. In the whole of the court thing, whether you be a lawyer, the judge, everything, your name is given out, but you can have the power to let a serial killer or serial sex offender out as one person and be completely anonymous. That should not be anonymous. You should be accountable for the decision that you made. You should. And it should not be one person. No. There should always be more than one person who's making that decision. One person is corruptible. Yeah. I mean, that's why I'm not a, I'm not a lover of parole boards and I'm not a lover of highly paid defense lawyers who get people off who have absolutely done the crime and they're getting them off for money, you know. Uh, I had a conversation about that with Tiffany from Cola City Crime, and she was saying that even if she was a lawyer, she didn't think she could ever be a defense attorney because how can you go in knowing someone did something horrible? And I understand that they have right to counsel to guide them through this process. And if they didn't do it, okay, great. But there are a lot of guilty people Everybody knows they're guilty. Look at O.J. Simpson. Yeah, that's right. We really have gotten off topic here, but... I know. Back to the story. Let's crack on. All right. We must crack on. Michael Bryant turned out to be the only one who was actually convicted at trial, and only on the charge of rioting. The other six made plea deals and accepted guilt only for being accessories to rioting. Which for some of them was probably fair because they showed up there. They participated in this intimidation of this family, but they're not the ones who actually injured someone. Yeah. So their issues, I don't really have that much problem with, yeah. but it's Jenkins that I have a problem with. When the group that actually got convictions was sentenced by Washington County presiding judge Gail Noctegall in January, 1999, she was livid. She felt like we do. She said to them, quote, you put the community through a horrible experience because you didn't like what someone said to you, end quote. When Michael Spacito called his actions a mistake, the judge said, don't you ever call it a mistake. A mistake is bumping over your cup of coffee. A mistake gives you permission to do it again. Jeremiah Jenkins had no sentence because he was found to have acted in self-defense. Michael Bryant was placed on three years of probation ordered to pay $2,000 in fines and fees and to perform 100 hours of community service in response to the rioting conviction. Now, this one confuses me a little bit. The other six boys were placed on probation and apparently three of them only had probation, but three of the other boys, Jamal Nagy, Colin Roberts, and Michael Spacito, were ordered to pay $10,000 fines. So I don't know why those three had $10,000 fines and the guy with the more major charge, only had 2000 That's weird. I don't know. I didn't find any explanation for why that was. No. But not a single one of them received a prison or juvenile sentence. No. No real punishment for actually injuring and nearly killing Richard. Yeah. By the first anniversary of the attack that nearly ended Richard Underwood Jr.'s life and pretty much changed everything for him forever, Richard Jr. was back and working at the family's tree lot. Underwood Brothers Christmas Trees had moved their location about a mile down the highway to a new asphalt lot, and Richard Jr. was there, selling, assisting, wrapping, and loading trees as always. He still had seizures, and he still had trouble with his memory. Richard Jr. didn't want to dwell on what happened, but he was ready to move on and stop thinking about it all the time. 
Yeah. He didn't seem to be able to really stop thinking about it. He said, quote, going into a seizure. What do I think about first thing? I think about Jeremiah Jenkins. I don't want to. I just do. But Richard Jr. was feeling positive. Through his focus on his wife and his baby boy, he was unwavering in his efforts to recover his speech, vocabulary, and cognitive capacities. He had moved into the career he had aspired to, even though it had a temporary setback. He had been embraced by the community, and he had met a lot of really kind and sympathetic people. Sales at the tree lot were up, and they were getting tons of return customers. He said people would stop at the lot, look quizzically at him, and then say, oh, I didn't know your name, but I recognize you. Yeah. So I say good for Richard Jr. He worked really hard to come back from that attack. Yeah. I'm just outraged that the jury found this to be self-defense, which we already have gone through. But this family was just running their business, literally minding their own business. When these little hoodlums came into their place of business, causing damage, and when they were reprimanded, they thought they had the right to come back and rough this family up. Yeah. That was their whole intent to rough this family up. So when these little snots go to trial, now it's self-defense. Yeah, yeah. I just think that's such crap. No, I mean, I totally agree with you. I I mean, it was all their doing, but I just knew that the defense lawyer was going to get them off on self-defense. I knew it. As soon as there was, Uh, as soon as the other 18 disappeared, and it was only two against four, I just knew that was going to happen. But the four weren't going to do anything to them. All they were doing was holding their car keys. Yeah, exactly. But I just knew it. They must have got a really clever defense lawyer. And he he managed to turn it around on them, didn't he? Well, they had gone there for the purpose of beating up the Underwoods to give themselves bragging rights. And then suddenly they're playing the victims. And that's to me, that's just maddening. And you, I know it is too. Yeah, it's maddening. It's really maddening. You know, it's really it's really out of order. But you just know that these, you know, I just, and I'm not going to get going about them again. But I mean, you know, you know, they're just really, they're awful. They're awful, these defence lawyers, awful people. They must have absolutely no conscience whatsoever. Yeah. I don't know how you can try to get somebody off on a charge like this. I Yeah. That kid wasn't sorry. He smirked at him at the hospital. No. And that just makes me so angry. I think it makes any proper thinking person angry. Yeah. But, you know, the law makes you angry, doesn't it? It it does. It does. It really does. But, I mean, it's like back in the case that I did. We do have life for murder where it means life. I think there's 80-odd people locked up in Britain who are on full life tariffs. But mainly, life is just now a figure of speech. They say it's life for murder, and then there is actually a tariff given. You must serve at least 15 years, 20 years, 25 years before you can seek parole. Mm -hmm. And I think in this country, the reason is that they think that if you don't offer that carrot, people will just go into prison and do an attack and kill whoever they want because they know there's no chance of them ever getting out. Yeah. Well, and they have a lot of privileges, too. Oh, yeah. Andy from Picture the Scene, when he was on, he was saying, you know, you don't seem to have the same level of prison violence that we have. And our guys do have privileges, too. They've got internet. There are prisoners in prison for murder, and they've got Facebook accounts. Yeah. They're on Instagram. It's like, holy crap, when did this happen? 
you're basically not in prison. You just live in a box, you know, you live in a box, but you you have all the same rights everybody else has. That seems wrong. Absolutely fantastic, isn't it? I mean, you know, you get you live in the warm, you've got three male meals a day, you've got full time use of a gym. You can learn a degree if you want to by going to the library, taking university courses, learning a trade. It's fantastic. To some extent, you do want people to be able to better themselves so that if they get out of prison, then they can go out and do something with their lives. But I don't know. I just have mixed feelings about it. You know, it's like, where's the, where's the punishment aspect of this? <laughs> I'm totally with you. I think we agree on the fact that we want our criminals to be punished. Yeah. And that doesn't seem to be the main reason that people go into prison now. It's let's rehabilitate him. And let's be honest, some people cannot be rehabilitated. Right. And let's rehabilitate him and send him out. It's not a fact that we get him in and hang on, you're supposed to be there to be punished for the crime first before <laughs> any rehabilitation comes into it. I would love it if they could be rehabilitated, but I just don't see that that's happening. You know that if you go in on your first offence, you're going to come out harder and meaner than you were when you went in. Yeah. And if you're... I mean, that's just a fact. That's just how it is. Absolutely. And if you're clever, you're going to know that if you go in there and just say, yes, sir, no, sir, three bags full, sir, you'll get out earlier than if you don't. You know, it doesn't mean that you're a good guy and that you've got remorse for what you did. It's just that you're playing the game. You're going to be really, really good until you get out. I want to go to the prison where you get to shear sheep and make three bags full. I love sheep. There you go. You'd be in your element. <laughs> I would. We also have a program here in some of the prisons, not probably the worst of them, but in like our medium security prisons, they have rescue dogs that are assigned to prisoners. And then the prisoners take that dog and they train them and get them ready to be adopted out. And I think that's a good program. You know, it's helping the people. It's helping the dog. Nice. If you were in prison and you had a dog, I would think that that would make you a nicer person. Yeah, nice. There's all kinds of criminals, isn't there? Yeah. I mean, mainly I'm talking about murderers, rapists and sex offenders, paedophiles, people like that. I mean, they're the people that yeah. are getting it easy as far as I'm concerned. Still people who are muggers and fraudsters and things like that, they still ruin people's lives. Yeah. But they are people who possibly could be turned into good members of the public. Right. You know, so that means if you get a rescue dog and it's going to make you a better person, I'm all for it. Yeah. But you're right. Murderers and rapists and pedophiles do not deserve dogs. No, they don't. I mean, I don't know about you, but do you think a sex offender or a rapist or a pedophile can ever be rehabilitated? I personally don't. No, no, I do not think that. You know, that's my feeling. I don't believe they can be rehabilitated. Right. You know. Once you have gone down that route, I don't think that you can ever no. not be that person anymore. Absolutely not. You know? but, I mean, that's just my personal feeling. I'm sure there's people out there who will completely disagree with me. But that's fine. But I just wanted to say that I've been listening to all your collaborations, and I think they're all brilliant. Well, thank you. I've actually followed all of them Aww. and carried on listening to their their episodes because they've all been so good so it's been it's been really great well thanks i will tell them that you said so yeah please do i have been very lucky because i mean all of the people that i've brought on they're people that i listen to they're people that i really like as people 
I have a lot of respect for the work that they do. And, and I'm not going to collaborate with someone that I don't feel that way about. I yeah. want someone on that I feel is better than me. I don't think there's anybody better than anybody. I think within podcasting, everybody is very good. I mean, you know, everybody's good. I mean, I know I have five or six favorite podcasts that I never miss, and you're one of them. Well, thank you for that. You know, so there's certain ones that I won't miss. As soon as they come out, I'll listen to them. But I think when it comes to indie podcasting, a lot of people are very happy to help and in any way they can and everything. And I think it's a very nice community. Well, I think it's like you said earlier, you said you have a hard time getting an episode out on a regular schedule because, yeah. you know, you have a busy life. You've got a daughter, you've got a job, you've got the exile yellow belly, you're out making videos, you're doing all kinds of things. My job is very stressful. Sometimes I work a lot of hours and I have to crochet every night. It's the only thing that keeps me sane. Yes. <laughs> I agree. Yeah. By the time I get to the point where I'm ready to record, sometimes it's Sunday and now I don't even have time to edit that episode. So how am I going to get it out by Friday? You know? Yeah. No, I think you do remarkable. I think anybody who does a podcast, regardless of how many episodes they can get out, if you can get one out a week, fantastic. If you don't get one out for a month or six weeks or two months, so what? If the content is good, People will carry on listening. Yeah. And I've found that out doing it the three years I've been doing it. My figures for me of what I want to to carry on are great. I mean, I'm not one of these massive podcasters that's getting thousands of people. Me neither. But for what I want to carry on, to me to think, oh, yeah, it's worthwhile me doing more of these. It's fine. I've never done it for money. I don't monetize or anything. So it's always been for the fun of it. So it's a hobby. It's great. Well, I was telling somebody in our little podcasting group on Instagram, I actually make negative dollars off of the podcast. Oh, yeah. People think that we do this I know. because we're getting paid somehow, but I pay money for my hosting platform, for my subscription to yeah. newspapers.com, for Canva, everything. Yeah. So I actually spend quite a bit of money on this podcast. Yeah, so, so when people are like, you definitely. sound like a book on tape, I'm like, okay, whatever. You know, that's what I mean. With indie podcasting, if you haven't got things like Patreon or Buy Me A Coffee or anything like that, you're actually in negative. You're paying out. I lose money being a podcaster, but I love it. Same, same. All right. We have gone on and on for a while now. We have. I want to say thank you so, so much for coming back. And it was just what july when you were here before and so yeah it was yeah, probably so. eight or ten episodes ago but here you are back you're such a good friend i really do appreciate you Lyndon. well i appreciate being on and i'm always there lurking in the wind as a late substitute if ever you need me how's that thank you so much all right yeah. well we better close this up because your mold wine is calling me i've got to heat it up <laughs> yeah i know I'll think of you in about, I don't know, about half an hour I'll be having my first one. That sounds lovely. It's a bit early because I'm sure we will contact each other through Instagram. Well, thank you very much. And as always, I am so grateful for your presence and your story and just your friendship. You're just a wonderful person and I really am just happy that I got to know you. Absolutely. So all of you who are listening today, if you have not already gone and followed Lyndon at Murder at Bedtime at Lyndon and The Exiled Yellow Belly, both of those are on YouTube. Only Murder at Bedtime is a podcast. That's right. Yeah. You are not going to be disappointed. He does a wonderful job and 
think this concludes episode 85. Thanks very much, Beth. Thank you, Lyndon. I really appreciate it. I'll see you soon, all right? Thank you. Bye. Bye. And then I've got a lot of scotch. Because Scotland's got a lot of stuff. Because of that's what he said. And Okay, here we go. I'm sorry. They've tried, they've tried to try. Period, period. So then they sent, the judge sentenced him and the judge sentenced him. The customers, right. I'm telling that to the listeners, not to you. I feel like I'm lisping all my S's. <laughs> I haven't had any mulled wine. It's not me. <laughs> he was charged with for Jeremiah Jenkins, who had been released on jail. I suddenly can't read. Yeah. I don't know. We really have gotten off topic here, but. <laughs> yeah, we have. Sorry. See, once again, you gave me the opportunity to get on my soapbox. <laughs> Um, you should never do that. Never let me loose with the soapbox. Well, I was on a soapbox too. I know. It's terrible. Battling soapboxes. <laughs> crack on. We must crack on. Outrage. The jury found this to be self-refense. He has the chutzpah. I think everybody's doing the same thing. And I think... I'm up in my game. Yeah, yeah, well... You know, it... it I agree, yeah. And by the... I mean, I don't... I'm not going to go homeless because I'm paying money for my podcast. I've seen pictures of your palace, Beth. <laughs> you should have seen it when I bought it, Lyndon. It was so <laughs> gross. It was so filthy and gross. And it hadn't been updated since 1982. It's marvelous now, though. It Thanks. really is. And I love what you can see out your windows and that. It's great. You've well, got a smashing front door. It's amazing. I love my front door. So I'm not <laughs> destitute. Because when you come here, you've actually produced content. Yeah. I've told people at work and people I know, and they said, oh, send us the link for the episode, won't you, when it's on? Because they want to listen. Oh, that's sweet of them. I love being a guest. How supportive. People at my work, they just kind of roll their eyes about my podcast. <laughs> I'm very lucky. I've got there's a few shifts on my work, and some of them actually sit around the table on tea break and listen to the latest episode. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. So it's good. That's fantastic. Okay, don't hang up. Don't touch the little red phone. I'm not touching the red <laughs> one. I told you, I can't touch that button. No, you cannot touch it. Get your hands to yourself. They are. I'm, I'm literally <laughs> sitting on them now, all right? You can maybe have a couple sips before you call mom and dad. Well, I, I probably won't have it before I talk to mom and dad. I don't want to be slurring. They'll catch up on that straight away. <laughs> Lyndon, what you up to? Exactly. I've been to Ireland and I loved it. Ireland, I went to Ireland. Gorgeous country, beautiful. It is beautiful. I just think that Scotland has the edge. It's gorgeous. I mean, I saw Outlander. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> or Highlander even. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs>